Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 274 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, we're going to talk about something today that's uh, kind of fascinating, actually. It is the whole gap between what you think about and what you do. And my goodness, sometimes in the middle of that comes life. Like, uh, I talk to so many leaders with great ideas. We love to debate ideas, but like, how do you turn a good idea into action. How does it scale? How does it soar? How do you know the difference between a good idea and a bad idea? Well, I'm so excited to have Charles Lee on the podcast today. He is an entrepreneur, an innovator, a former church leader who now consults with top companies to help them turn ideas into reality. And he shares his roadmap with that. And I think you're going to be super encouraged today for that. Hey, if you're listening for the very first time, welcome. We are so glad to have you on board. It is a real honor to have you invest this much time in the podcast. And I hope whatever you're doing today, this really does help. If you find this beneficial, you can do a few things. You can subscribe. It's absolutely free anywhere you get your podcasts. Also, when you share this, when you leave a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, when you share this with your friends, when you post to social makes a huge, huge difference. And thank you so much for everything that you do. I so appreciate it. And we're really excited to have some partners we trust here on the podcast. And these are organizations that we believe in whose services have helped thousands, in some cases, tens or hundreds of thousands of leaders. And we want them to help you. And my friends at Church Community Builder create software that gives you everything you need to engage your congregation and grow disciples. 20 years ago, their founder realized only a handful of people at his church who they were baptizing were actually regular attenders. They just kind of fell off. And he said, well, what can I do about that? So Church Community Builder exists to solve that problem by helping you, well, do things like welcome people, get them plugged into community prevent them from slipping through the cracks or out the back door. And their software handles everything you need. It's kind of a turnkey solution for your church from children's check-in, volunteer management, giving, events, facility scheduling, forms, even to worship planning. It's the only tool you really need for ministry. And they have a mobile app that obviously is going to give you and your leaders information about anything you need and people and notes and other tools on the go. So if you care about people, engagement, and discipleship, Church Community Builder is a must-have. Now, to celebrate 20 years of serving the church, guess what? Because you listen to this show, they're offering you 20% off to listeners of this podcast. So go to churchcommunitybuilder.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y, to get started. You'll get 20% off. So just go to churchcommunitybuilder.com forward slash carry, and they will help you out there. And everyone also knows that communicating with volunteers is vital for long-term health, but it's never really been easy to communicate well. You can send emails, you can shoot text messages, but that's hard. Most ministry leaders end up using multiple tools to try to communicate to Volunteers who are already overwhelmed with the number of places they have to remember things or get reminded of things. So over at ServeHQ, our friends who make Trained Up, they have just launched a brand new tool called HuddleUp. And it's the first communications tool, brand new, 
built specifically for church leaders. HuddleUp brings all of your digital ministry communications into one place. So with HuddleUp, you can send weekly video updates by email or text, create online discussions to foster community through the week, and send text alerts for last-minute information and share important files like curriculum or camp waivers, etc., etc., etc. You can learn more about Huddle Up and start a 14-day free trial by going to servehq.church. That's servehq.church and start Huddle Up today for free for 14 days. You get that free trial. Well, without a whole lot of further ado, let's dive into my conversation with Charles T. Lee. He is the founder of Ideation. And uh, let's turn some of those ideas into reality while you are on your run, cooking in the car on your commute, prepping dinner, washing dishes, whatever you're doing. You know that idea you're thinking about? Let's get it done. Okay, here's my conversation with Charles Lee. Well, Charles, welcome to the podcast. It is great to have you. Thanks so much for having me, Carrie. Pleasure yeah, to be yeah. here. So we met about a year ago at Rethink Leadership, a conference I do every year in Atlanta, and you kind of wowed everybody with your presentation. And I thought, man, I got to <laughs> have them on the podcast. So tell us, because it's an unusual company, if you go to your website, it's not easy to tell. Like you basically help people turn their ideas into reality. But like, tell right. us more about that. What is it exactly that you do? And how did you end up doing this? That's a great question. Um, I'll try to give you a quick a few minute version of it. Sure. Yeah. Um, our, yeah. I mean, at the heart of what our business does is we work with leaders and executives of brands and uh, we help them like achieve a lot of clarity around their thinking and their strategy and then we have a team of consultants and creatives who come alongside of them to help them kind of execute it, flesh it out, visualize it. Uh, and uh, we work across all different types of industries. Uh, I guess the context for me goes back um, when I was five, uh, I immigrated to the U.S. with my parents. And uh, I'm the only child of two, two immigrants. And we started with literally nothing. And uh, both of them became pretty successful in the restaurant industry. Uh, oh, okay. And took yeah. And to your family's built, from built Korea, out. am I right on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. From Korea, and they built out uh, a couple of uh, great franchises of restaurants and other types of businesses that they built along the way. And so, from an early, early age, all I knew was how to scale stuff, and that hmm. became kind of a natural core competency from everything from treating employees, doing the books. And just kind of understanding that's that's the only environment I grew up in. And given that both my parents didn't speak English, I was kind of forced into uh, opportunities to represent them in conversation. And uh, I learned a lot about things like marketing. And so all of that just taught me really the value of achieving clarity and executing well. Uh, and so I saw the good part of business growing up that way. I was probably more, I caught, it was more caught than taught. Um, but, um, I also saw all of the, you know, the sacrifices required to build something of significance and it did cost them their marriage. Uh, it oh, did man. cost a lot of probably pain, uh, in our own family. And so because of that, I literally ran the other way, uh, and, uh, did everything from, you know, dropping out of college. So I, I broke like every stereotype, like an Asian American could have. <laughs> okay. Uh, so uh, so. I, I was not a good student. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, and, and I just kind of, uh, went on my own and I was a little bit hurt over just everything that had transpired in our lives. I, of course we gained a lot of things, but it came at a pretty deep cost. So, 
Um, I, after kind of scrambling and trying to figure out what I want to do with my life, one of my uh, youth pastors actually found me and said, hey, uh, you kind of need to get your life back in order. And so he said, until you figure stuff out, I had kind of hit rock bottom living in Hollywood, just kind of doing my thing. He said, um, you know, why don't you go to this Christian college uh, while you figure stuff out? And uh, I kind of reluctantly went, dropped out again. Uh, and actually, uh, you know, a year later, I went back to the college and I was really fortunate to meet a couple of professors who kind of took me under their wings and uh, helped me kind of um, reframe how I thought about the world. And it was really, really helpful. So coming out of a Christian environment like that, I thought maybe ministry was it. So yeah. uh, I wanted to teach at a university uh, and then volunteer in ministry. So I actually ended up achieving that pretty quickly. Uh, and so I ended up going back to that college, Life Pacific College, and was a professor for about nine years. And while doing that, volunteered in ministries um, and planted, helped plant about four different churches uh, during that time frame. In addition to helping friends with startups and nonprofits, so you can imagine that kind of eventually ended up in burnout. Oh my goodness! And, uh, yeah, I guess so. I'm yeah. tired thinking about it. <laughs> So ended up in a, in a lot of therapy, uh, just kind of thinking through my life. And what I had realized, uh, kind of a big tech takeaway through that time was I had confused competency with calling. Hmm. And um, I think I was I was good at a lot of different things. But my what my therapist, uh, what she walked me through was like, what are you kind of best in your world at? And I realized it was like really executing and scaling ideas. And uh, even while juggling 10 different things, I realized that's one thing I, I did really well. And I took that for granted. And as you know, Carrie, sometimes our greatest strengths are, you know, kind of in our blind spots because we assume everybody else knows how to do it. Uh, and then I realized, man, no, that's a unique, I think, gifting that God has given me. And so that's where the idea of ideation came from was like, how do we, how do I help others really not take their ideas to the grave, but help them really scale those concepts. Uh, Cause I had a knack for how to do that. And that's where ideation came from. Wow. I want to go back a little bit and, and the insight, by the way, on competency, your competency is not your calling. That's huge. Yeah. That's huge. Like I, 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 just cause you're good at something doesn't mean you're called to do it. Right. Is that the idea? Absolutely. underneath it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I have really good uh, mentors and others who, who said, you know, uh, leaving type of kind of the uh, vocational ministry setting was a mistake, um, that I was so quote unquote gifted in that area. Uh, and I, uh, I'm so glad I kind of didn't listen at that point. I mean, there's definitely wisdom from mentors, but it was just one was I just knew deep in my heart that I could make greater impact doing something else. I was going to say, how did you know? I mean, to a lot of people, particularly... Yeah. To a Christian, that would feel like disobedience. So how did you discern oh, yeah. that that wasn't your calling? Um, I, I, um, the more I talk with people, I realized that people were very well intended. They wanted the best for me. So it wasn't anything, you know, any type of misguidance in that sense. Uh, but I knew that if I could, you know, instead of building specific projects that built my world in that space, uh, that if I could somehow uh, exponentially multiply uh, and help others to build whatever you know they were called to do, 
that in the long run, that would make significantly more impact than me building a specific ministry or uh, building a specific activity at the school. Um, and so it, it was really difficult. I guess there is an element of trust, but there is this deep sense of peace that what I was doing was actually the correct thing in the long run. Oh, that's good to know. Um, and, and yeah, so you, okay, just to, to, to dot that I and cross that T, am I right yeah. to say you looked at the impact your life could have and you realized that helping realize other people's ideas was going to be a greater expression of what you believe God wanted you to do than to just build something yourself. Absolutely. Like, okay. Yeah, that's totally fair. And I think that's what um, I remember uh, one of my mentors used to always say, like, if you want to find the greatest collection of human treasures on the planet, all you have to do is visit the local cemetery because in it are, you know, buried like songs that were never sung or recorded, books that were never written, ideas that could have transformed the world that for whatever reason people didn't execute on. And so- so you know, when I realized, man, I want that to be my life mission because I think my premise is that um, we're designed by God to be someone and do something. And too many people, for justified or not, find ways to take those ideas literally to the grave. Yeah. And if I could help others excel in that, I feel that's really deeply related to who I am as an individual. And that probably gives me some of the greatest joy is to see ideas actualize and come to life so that it would not only make the person's life better, but it will make our world better. Hmm. Okay. We're going to do a deep dive into that, but I want to go back to your childhood and your parents coming over. So yeah. you said they franchised, they became quite well yeah. known when they were still together. Would it, You're from California, just outside of LA. Would yeah. it be restaurants that people knew or they were just there for a yeah. little while? Like you didn't start PF Chang's uh, or anything, did you? <laughs> <laughs> no, they were, they were like some of the early uh, innovators of this thing called Korean barbecue. Oh, and really? So I know, I know that, uh, you know, some of the earlier restaurants were some of the first to like cook at the table. My mother, I think created the first Korean uh, buffet. Uh, no they have way. some dishes that, that have now become kind of staple in our culture. Like? So they, um, you know, uh, like when you go to a Korean barbecue restaurant, a lot of places will have like uh, rice wraps that you use to uh-huh. wrap meat around. Uh, that was my uh, uh, my father and my stepmother's idea. Um, and so it's kind of cool to see some of the concepts and the kind of the fusion plays on recipes that they brought into the market that have now somewhat become standard uh, in, in that industry. Yeah, no kidding. And when was this? Was this in the the seventies, the eighties? When when was this? Was it? Uh, the late seventies, uh, all the way through the two thousands. Wow. And yeah. and you said they had a knack for scaling. So what was that like yeah. when you were a kid? How did you realize? Wow, my parents, even though their marriage didn't survive, they had a gift for this. Yeah. And how did that get you excited as a little kid? Like, what did you see? Yeah, I was so impressed that, I mean, I think my appreciation for them has grown over the years, Uh, but I was so impressed that, like, imagine, I can't imagine, like, moving to a foreign country where I had no context of the culture or the language to be able to start a business, let alone set it up, but build it, build a reputation around it, figure out how to market it uh, without, like, speaking the language, 
uh, how did they be do able that? To, like, like that sounds impossible. I guess you were were you yeah. you were the conduit. Yeah, in some cases, like they would literally take me to set things up and try to translate for them. Uh, and I was in like grade school, going to middle school, and so um, I did what I could. I didn't really understand what was going on, but it kind of forces you to walk through the process of setup and and scale. And and my parents uh, did a great job, just just being great human beings of like taking care of their employees, being very generous. You know, I remember my mother buying like a car for an employee so they can get to work, uh, finding places for them to stay. Um, so uh, they they always put people first, and and I think that's why they were so successful in what they did, is they knew how to build a great culture of trust. Uh, but even at that, I mean, the restaurant industry is so cutthroat. It uh, is, yeah. So many, yeah. Hard to make money. It's so in painful, it. absolutely. So um, yeah, and so we did lack a lot of things too. I mean, I don't recall as a child taking any long vacations because right. it was like a six to seven day. Uh, venture and 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 so you know you kind of pick a lot of things up a lot of details that once again were probably more caught than taught so we're going to dive into what you do now but looking back on it now with all the hindsight that you have with some decades under your belt what what were some things your parents did well that helped them to scale they took care of people they came up with innovative ideas. They introduced a new product to the market. They defined what became the staples of Korean barbecue. But what are what are some of the things? Because there's lots of people with great ideas and recipes who will never scale. So what did they do yeah. that other people might have missed? They had this undeniable work ethic mm. where and, and this commitment to solve for problems that they didn't know how to solve for. And, uh, you know, I think it's their ability to once again, like think clearly about what problem are they really facing? Um, and then um, the more I've done like studies and innovation and disruption and how businesses are solving problems, I realized they had a knack for not only trying to figure out what the problem is, but what's the real job they're trying to do. Um, you know, an example of that would be is that like for us, we... Um, uh, we help brands scale. Um, that's part of our work. But the real job we do is we help executives become very successful in those brands. Okay. Because they're supported with some of the ideas and and the clarity and the visuals and things like that from our company. Um, so although we know the outcome will be beneficial for the whole company, the real job we're doing is making people really successful in whatever they're pursuing. And so knowing that difference is a big deal because I think sometimes people get uh, caught up in just the idea and forget ultimately who is the idea serving. And it may not be who you think it's serving or what it's serving. So that end, you wrote a book a few years ago, which um, yeah. and you make a distinction in it. You say there's a difference between idea lovers and idea makers. Most people yeah. are idea lovers that I know. You know, yeah. leaders love love that space. Hey, I had an idea today. Hey, why don't we try? Yeah. What's the difference between an idea lover and an idea maker? Yeah, I think uh, I think most of us love ideas. I mean, how how can you not love ideas living in in the world that we do with access to the internet and and what we For have sure. around us? Um, but there is a clear distinction between who people who just talk about ideas and those who actually do something with it. 
Uh, I don't know if you have friends and I've probably been guilty of this over the years of like talking about an idea over coffee, like month after month, week after week, like year after year. And then one day you're like, man, somebody took my idea. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> well, in actuality, they didn't take your idea. It's just that, you know, we didn't do anything with it. And so I'm more uh, focused, because like, I think ideas are dime a dozen, but ideas are impotent without action and aren't as powerful unless you actualize the idea. This podcast was an idea for probably three years before I launched it, because I was a podcast listener long before I was a podcaster. Yeah. I'm like, I'm having these amazing conversations. I got to do it. I got to do it. And I had a thousand reasons why it couldn't happen. But then now for five years, I've had this podcast, which is pretty sweet. Um, so what? why do ideas end up stuck in people's heads? Like what are some of the barriers to execution? Yeah, I think uh, one is, is kind of counterintuitive, but ideas are fun to just think about. And I think there's a natural tendency for uh, people to enjoy the thinking of an idea. Um, and I think, unfortunately, like studies have shown that people who talk a lot about an idea without like documenting it or doing something with it are actually less likely to implement the idea because it tricks your brain into thinking that you're actually doing something by talking about it. I was going to ask you if there was neural research on that, but yeah. yeah, that makes sense. It's like, well, I've talked about it for years. So is that, that almost like, does that release, I don't know, endorphins or pleasure or whatever? Um, dopamine, like what, what does that actually do to you? Yeah, it gives, it gives a, a little bit of a chemical sense that you are making progress because, you know, obviously of like uh, elevated sense of um, excitement, adrenaline, uh, it feels like there's motion, uh, but in actuality, you're probably digging yourself into immobility a little bit more. Uh, and then the other flip side is, you know, uh, I remember reading uh, Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art. Yeah, which is a great book for creatives. And he talks about the lizard brain. Uh, and I think part of the idea is when you get close to even thinking about doing something about it, there's this defense mechanism that kicks into our like survival instinct that tells us that, you know, gives us a list of usually irrational reasons as to why the idea won't work, why people won't like it. Uh, and that mechanism uh, really shoots shoots us and gives is it gives us a huge disadvantage. And you know, I often when people get stuck in that moment, I usually turn the tables and say, "Hey, if someone else came to you with that exact same idea, with the same level of passion, what would you advise them?" And most cases, people would say, "Go for it." And it's <laughs> funny how we don't listen to our own advice to others. Because, uh, you know, naturally, it's probably easier to be optimistic about other people's abilities than ours sometimes. Oh, yeah. All kinds of people are coming to mind as you're talking. So let me ask you this. Are you saying, just to be clear, like, are you saying that, because you got to kind of, I'm a verbal processor. So I talk through ideas. It's like, hey, I think I'm going to do this podcast or, hey, I'm thinking of starting this. But are you saying that there is like, is there an objective time like a window where you need to stop talking about it and you need to start doing it. Like if I'm still talking about it six months or a year later, I'm going to run a marathon. I'm going to run a marathon. I'm going to run a marathon. Like, is there, is there a window in which, yeah, go ahead and talk about it and then shut up and do it. Like what, what, what's your thought on that? 
Yeah, I, I don't think there's an exact window, but I would say documentation is probably a good um, test to see if an idea is m- moving forward. So whether it's like a for something like a personal goal, being able to like write it down and say, here's what I'm going to do and sharing that in some type of written form with someone else instantaneously creates a point of reference and accountability. And I think that it's like those little things, like, so you get in a meeting and you say, hey, let's network more together. I've been in that setting where, hey, let's work on a project together. I think what's been helpful is a follow-up email that says, hey, thanks for talking with me. Here's what I took away. Do you think these are good next steps? It forces kind of the motion you need to actually get stuff done. And so like documentation, and I have a chapter in my book called The Miracle of Writing, it's, it's amazing how much progress you can make when you start writing. So I'm not against sharing the idea to a certain extent, mm-hmm. but before you share it, you owe it to yourself to put it on paper so that you have a document you can improve over time as you're having conversation with others. Yeah, I think you talk about in the book, even sitting in a meeting and already writing the follow-up email as the meeting's winding Absolutely. down. So that you can pretty absolutely. much hit send before you jump in the Uber or the car or whatever to go home. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, one of the reasons people talk about ideas is because they're really not sure that it's a good idea. What is the difference? Like, how do you know whether your idea is really a good one or whether it's a mediocre one? Because ideas are a dime a dozen. Yeah, they, they truly are. I mean, that's a great question. Uh, in my mind, a good idea is less about... Um, uh, whether one is better than the other. Uh, I think for me, good ideas uh, boil down to whether or not it actually solves a real problem in the world. So the way that I'm measuring good is really on the side of impact. So it's it's less about being better in comparison to another idea, but more about the value add an idea brings to a problem. And this is where I think I understand innovation to be is that innovation is really about problem solving, probably even more than about creativity. And so for me, a good idea is the goodness of it is I think correlates to the impact that can make in the world. Hmm. And so uh, if it's more about like a subjective conversation, like, hey, let's have good ideas, then it's less interesting to me uh, because then it becomes a very subjective standard. But once you start elevating it to a place where I have a business idea or I have an idea for a a ministry or an organization or leadership that could create significant impact, then it probably starts to raise into the realm of, man, that's a really good idea because it's going to produce a lot of good at the end of it. Hmm. So it's what the idea will accomplish. Do you hear that sometimes in startup circles as like find the pain point, like what pain are you trying to solve? What problem are you trying to tackle? Is that the idea? Yeah, because ultimately, like good ideas that gain traction will uh, frame the problem really well. And then we'll frame how the idea will help guide uh, the benefactor of that, uh, you know, beneficiary of the idea through a a new stage and then be able to kind of paint a picture of what success looks like for them. So um, I think that's where, you know, good ideas really flourish is it's answering an actual pain point in the world. So, okay, now you got a good idea, just running through the hypothetical. You got a good idea, it solves a pain point, solves a problem, addresses an issue. 
what are your next steps? You write it down. Is that like in a journal? Do you share it with a friend? Like walk us through the process of turning ideas into reality. Yeah, I think um, having, um, I, I would say like most people that I know that have started a company or produced something at some point will have to write things down yeah, yeah, <laughs> into yeah. some type of plan. It doesn't have to be super exhaustive. I've seen like literally executive summary type of plans at the beginning to uh, recently my friend handed me a plan and it was 200 pages long. Oh, wow. That's so, a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of work. But, you know, in, in his case, it was more in the aerospace. Yeah. You got to get that stuff right. <laughs> right? <laughs> at some point, yeah. at some point, the physics actually matter. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And I would say like the plan, I mean, there's plenty of resources that talk about business plans and such, but I think the plan has to be, you know, it doesn't have to be complete, but you kind of need to approach it sort of like a Google doc and say, we're going to build this as we go. Uh, but at right. the root of it, once again, is like, what problem are you solving and what are you providing that solves that problem? And what the success for the customer look like? And so this customer centric, this like building empathy for the customer or the person you're trying to ser serve is so vital to developing the plan. And I think uh, sometimes, you know, many of us are guilty of strategizing something for people that don't even exist. <laughs> Hmm. And uh, uh, I realized that, you know, That's even true. in my background and serving in organizations, it's sometimes like, man, it worked at this organization I was a part of and I enjoyed it so much. And you try to bring it on, on here and it's like a totally different context. The, the assumptions yeah. that drive our execution uh, are, are definitely um, uh, our blind spots in the process. So the power of writing things down, I am a goal maker. I still am. I know some people like words or whatever, but you know, yeah. we're recording this in mid June and I'm going on uh, vacation within a few days of recording this. So I kind of went, wow, we're halfway through 2019. How did that happen? And I went back to a document I created in January with <clears throat> annual objectives that honestly I should probably reference more than I do. But what blew me away is I've accomplished most of my 2019 goals mm. for uh, halfway through the year. Like, I think there were two left that weren't accomplished and yeah. they were more personal than, than ministry or business. And is there that much power in writing things down? I mean, obviously I had some strategy attached to that, but like, is that, t tell me more. I'm j I was, I was really surprised. And these are goals that I've been setting goals for years and mostly yeah. very few carry over from year to year. We're able to accomplish yeah. it if we really throw our, our heart behind it. Yeah, sometimes I use this example, like if you're like wanting to buy a particular car right? and you kind of note that, it's amazing how many times you see that vehicle around town mm -hmm. because you have set in front of your mind what you're looking for. And I think even if it's, if it's a list that you write down that you may never refer back to, just going through that practice, I think puts it on our mental radar. Right. And I think that's a powerful notion because then you can work towards, even if some of that is subconscious, is the fact that you've explicitly identified some things, but subconsciously working on it. In the same way, like sometimes when I have a difficult problem I, or challenge I need to solve for, sometimes I'll think about it and do what I can to research it and then go to sleep at night and not try to solve it before the morning. And it's amazing what our human brains can do. 
uh, <laughs> yeah, through yeah. the process to come up with solutions and make connections that we don't see. But it goes, it requires that commitment to say, hey, I need to explicitly visualize it or write it down or draw it or what have you uh, to get me going in it. And even if you don't look at it in the months to come, uh, you're probably far better off than not doing that. You got an idea that hits a pain point or addresses a problem. Uh, <clears throat> let's say you've written it down. Maybe you've shared it with some people. Um, what are some other barriers to action or what are some steps to action that you next need to take? Like if you're really going to scale an idea, yeah. you're really going to see things happen. What are some best practices or some things, you know, conversely, take it however you want, that jettison yeah. so many people who are like, well, I wrote that down four years ago and I still haven't done anything about it. Like, what do you, yeah. how do you get past that inertia? Yeah, this is where I think uh, people who have written a lot in the area of design thinking has really helped to kind of accelerate this is this right. notion of rapid prototyping it. Ah. Um, I think an, any idea is worth, uh, you know, prototyping uh, quickly. So it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't matter policy. So the prototype could be literally like putting together a presentation deck that fleshes out a concept or a service you want to provide. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be like if you're working with designing a space, uh, you could literally take Lego pieces or, you know, what have around you to see how, say, a flow does. And this is what companies like Chick-fil-A and others do really well is if you go to their innovation lab, you know, they can mock up stores that they're, you know, um, planning to open in different cities and they can move the walls around, bring in real customers to see, you know, if they could create a better flow of the traffic. And so I'm always impressed when I walk into a Chick-fil-A of how quickly they get through the crowds. Oh, it's insane. The double drive-through, like it's crazy yeah. what they do. They invented that, yeah. right? Yeah. So, I mean, that kind of concept practice, but it took prototyping. It took a lot mm. of testing. So it doesn't have to be a perfect idea, but if you have a, um, you know, a concept for an app, draw it out, literally. Um, those kinds of things, because unless you prototype, you won't uncover the real questions you need to be asking about a product or service. Yeah. And I think the questions that come out of that phase is, are far different than the early strategic phases of things. How so? Um, so for example, like, um, you know, say uh, an example I use is, say we're tasked with designing the new Honda Odyssey minivan. Sure, yeah. Uh, and so one way to do it is to bring in brilliant people into a strategic boardroom to say, hey, let's let's design a better minivan. And so that would be a traditional way of trying to develop strategy around it. Uh, a design thinking approach might be as, hey, let's go on a road trip in a minivan and sit in all different places and uh, begin to feel the customer's pain points in this vehicle. Hmm. And that type of like actual experience driven, like testing things out. What if we move the cup holder here? What if we, you know, change the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, how far you can put your seat back, the space between yeah. the seats, all of those kinds of things, those types of questions probably won't come out in the same kind of way as in a strategy session. So being able to kind of balance that, and that's where I think prototyping has huge value. And from there, then you can really see if it's viable is it desirable? Is it feasible? And then you can iterate forward from that point on. Okay. You talk about bootstrapping. I know one of the issues, particularly in church world or not-for-profit world, is, well, we don't have an unlimited budget. Um, yeah. How do you address that, like the limitations of finance? 
Well, I, I thought God provides all the resources. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hundred uh, percent. Good theology, man. Yeah, I think uh, that's where you have an opportunity to think creatively about collaboration. Yeah. Uh, I, I learned this early on with even like larger brands, is they will um, create collaborations or collectives uh, to say, you know, three different companies come together and say, hey, we're going to approach this one vendor. And we're actually going to get a better deal because now we have volume, maybe in our travel, uh, hotel stays to, you know, flights to, you know, supplies from, you know, say collectively, if three companies went to Office Depot or something like that, they could probably leverage a better deal. Um, I think for nonprofits, some of the new ideas that kind of emerging is one is, um, you know, I've seen more nonprofits merge recently than before. Uh, one being acquired by another. Um, and we've seen, obviously we've seen that in the business world for years. Yeah. Uh, but I, people realizing that, hey, we have specific verticals of programming or impact that we're doing. Maybe a partnership could solve some of the pain points with another existing organization. And uh, of course there are challenges there as well. Um, but doing those kinds of like collaboration is a great way to think about problem solving uh, and then a lot of times the resources are there, but maybe it's not a clear ask of what's needed. And so the lack of clarity around actually storytelling the the vision, not only the vision, but the plan to actually get things done yeah. uh, could be a barrier to resources. So um, in some of the organizations we work with, we found that resources are there, but people aren't willing to give or participate through their skill set because they don't know what to give to and why. You know, I, I want to test this out with you. I got a buddy of mine and a serial entrepreneur, Casey Graham, and uh, he says, action produces traction. And I hear a lot of people saying, you know, well, I'll give you an example from my platform. When I started blogging and now we have over, well, the content that I produce gets accessed over a million times a month. But I remember when I started, it wasn't even close to that. And I spent, $79 on a blog theme seven years ago and just started writing three days a week, right? And I could have worried about yeah. my site design. I could have worried, well, I don't have $1,000 for a better theme, but it was like 79 bucks for a cheap little theme online. And I started yeah. writing. Same with the podcast, you know, total investment startup was $1,000. Now it costs a lot more to do the show the way we do it now, but I started and all of a sudden all these people showed up. What do you think about that? Like, do you think sometimes it's creating what they call in startup world a minimum viable product? You know, it has to be good enough that yeah. somebody's going to have a good experience with it. But, you know, when you think of barriers to entry, people are like, well, I don't, you know, I'd have to get a loan for that or it's going to cost 10x what it actually could cost if they just got resourceful and used what was around them. And I mean, we bootstrapped it, which is amazing. So how, what would you say about that? Do you think that sometimes we just, create these invisible barriers that aren't really there? Absolutely. Yeah. I think we we can be resourceful with what we have. And I think uh, it's not only like that, you know, biblical principle of, of that notion of faithfulness and good stewardship to what God's given us. Yeah. Uh, but it's true. Like there is no nowadays, I mean, you may have to do a little bit extra work. You may have to spend a little bit more time than those who have resources on, say, distribution of your content, for example. Um, but it can be done. And when someone's starting off, I always encourage like, 
quantity is really the goal. And over time, you will begin to refine the quality of ultimately what you're going to deliver. So early on, it's okay to try, and it doesn't have to be, you know, testing that minimal viable product, which obviously the tech industry has helped us a lot to think about, is that, look, you want to produce something that maybe is 70% there and try it out with your customers and ask them to help you uh, make the product better. And that's, once again, a customer-centric approach, listening to them often, getting feedback, seeing where the data and the analytics are. So those are the things that are there. And it's absolutely true that, yeah, action does produce traction. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, you know, everybody from Walt Disney to everyone said, you know, the best way to do it is just go do it. Start something. Yeah. And yeah. that's that's the way best way to build it. Um, yeah. Because everything else, all the... Ex, um, reasons why you can't do it are probably once again, kind of your lizard brain kicking in. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. It, they're usually irrational reasons. How do you get past your lizard brain irrationality? Yeah. Sometimes for me, I literally will write down everything my, that part of my brain is telling me. And then I either go over that list with somebody else on the team <laughs> Yeah. Uh, literally an outside voice to say, hey, do you think these things are true? Am I crazy? And not, yeah. Yeah. Nine out of 10 times, I, you know, people that know you will pretty immediately say like, this is bogus. This is like unnecessary st- stress. It's all hypothetical. It's not based in the real world. And the only way to find out even if those are obstacles is to actually act upon your idea. I love the line you use, ideas don't work you do. Um, yeah. Anything else to say about that? We've talked a lot about a bias for action, yeah. but anything else on that idea that ideas don't work, you do? Yeah, it, it's just that the core idea is that, you know, ideas are once again, like impotent without action. Mm. Don't be satisfied with a good idea. Um, and I, I'm reminded of, I think it was Richard Branson who said like, uh, you know, care enough to do something about it. Yeah. Uh, And so it's maybe it's less about the good ideas, more about do you care enough about it and what it would produce if it was actualized to actually do something about it. Okay, um, so we've sort of angled this interview from a position of starting something, starting something new. But a lot of people are trying to broker change in an established organization, whether that's an established company, uh, an established church, a denomination, a school system an institution, but something that's already moving and they're supposed to be change agents. Uh, How do you get past the bias against change? And I want to look, you know, we're doing this by video. Some of you are watching by YouTube, but if you just, it says uh, on this poster, I've never seen that quote, change is inevitable. Progress is not focus on progress and stop worrying about change. I wrote a book on change. I've never heard that. (laughs) That's brilliant. Where'd you come up with that? Or you just find that somewhere? Um, that is, um, I had written some content around it and that was a kind of a couple of sentences that stuck with, uh, the readers. So you had it, uh, you had it made. That's great. Yeah. Just to remind myself. Yeah. Change is inevitable. Progress (laughs) is not focus on progress and stop worrying about change. Yeah. I always wanted to quote myself. So I put up on the wall. (laughs) Charles, it's awesome. Tell us what you mean by that. Um, yeah, I, I think I think um, bringing change to an organization is really difficult, and I think sometimes 
There's so much conversation about change that once you start entering a conversation about change and how difficult that is, you're bound to come up with multiple reasons as to why something can't change. And so my thought is like, focus on what you can do to move the conversation along instead of trying to identify all of the potential uh, you know, challenges or uh, points of uh, pain. And so um, in working with organizations that are kind of leading change, I think uh, internally with an organization, um, I, I remember like uh, when we first met, I did a presentation and one of the slides was taking kind of the, uh, the Kubler-Ross change curve, which is primarily used in the context of tragedy or someone going through loss. And the more I looked at that, I realized, man, ideas kind of work in a similar way. Whether new leadership comes into an organization or new idea that disrupts an existing organization, people kind of go through some of those stages. Like, you know, initially there's shock and then there's denial that it's actually happening. The change is actually coming. Uh, then there's frustration, you know, recognize that things are going to be different. So it makes people angry a lot of times. Uh, and then it enters like, you know, depression, uh, this this feeling that there's low energy, uh, the mood is very low, um, the feeling that things aren't going to get better. And then, you know, eventually people, human beings, I think are very resilient. And I think organizations can be very resilient as well, is they begin to experiment on what could be different. And then decisions are made to kind of build capacity around that. And ultimately, there's integration that happens over time. But that change doesn't happen overnight. Uh, there's no magic pill that you can give everybody in your organization to take. Yeah. Uh, but what you can do is at each stage provide something of benefit as people are going through this kind of emotional roller coaster, you know. Uh, one thing might be is when they're in midst of like denial or frustration, that's when you over-communicate right. and max maximize communication to create alignment as to ultimately painting the story of how this change will produce a greater outcome for the group. That that commitment to communication, but you know, I've seen some leaders at this point where people are upset and they get upset too, and they choose not to communicate. Secrecy is increased. Uh, and that's when the organization uh, starts to kind of come apart, become siloed and such. Uh, and when people are in a low state of like, you know, it might literally be at times depression because of the new new ideas and new environment, uh, is to spark motivation. It's less about more information at that point. It's more about how do you motivate people or inspire people uh, to reimagine a new future. Um, and then... You know, as enter experimentation uh, is to develop some capacity uh, and then give them some like new skill set, ability to share what they're going through, share new knowledge that leads ultimately to a new type of workflow and integration. Oh, that's really good advice, man. That's worth uh, like rewinding and listening to again. That's <laughs> super good. So really focus on the progress, the why behind the what. Yeah. And keep going, keep encouraging the troops and don't you get scared and don't get dragged down by the emotions that people are feeling. Yeah. I remember seeing that, Charles, when you presented that in Atlanta and I thought, man, that really is true. I hadn't actually superimposed Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's yeah. grief stages on change, but it's very true. Yeah. Um, let's talk about pivoting for a minute. This is true in a startup. You have this idea. It could be a change. 
And you're like, they talk about in Silicon Valley and so on, and companies are doing this all the time. We're pivoting, right? We were going to do this, but now we're going to do that. We're going to change our idea. How do you, are, are, are there markers along the way that tell you that this idea isn't the right idea? Like, how do you know when to pivot and when should you just stick to your guns and barrel through? Yeah. I don't know if there's like an absolute line for that because on one hand, I think like wisdom's kind of, I guess I'll take more of a Aristotelian approach to this is like wisdom's in the middle. Um, I think on one hand, you want to listen to your team and your customer base uh, and regularly get feedback of kind of each stage of development and be open enough and hopefully humble enough to uh, take some feedback. Uh, the other part is there are these moments where you're creating something that the customer doesn't even know they need. Yeah. And so I suppose some of them really depends on what you're creating. Uh, if it's a simple like physical product, then you can get feedback pretty immediately, even through a, uh, um, like a, a prototype. Uh, but if it's more of a concept or a campaign or things that may be immaterial by nature, uh, then I think there are moments where uh, you as a leader have to make a decision on when to move forward or not. Now, you could calculate some of the risk for that, but there's no guarantee. I mean, you know, if you put, I was trying to think of like, if we put like Steve's ba- Steve Jobs back into this kind of matrix of thinking, uh, there are moments that, you know, a lot of times he just kind of went for it. Yeah. And, yeah. and his his approach is more like, here's what I want. I don't care if it's not technologically possible, figure it out. So that's, I guess, one way of leadership. And I don't know, I mean, that can either lead you to become a genius of an organization or you're going to just have a bunch of people angry at you. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah. you know, he experienced kind of both. Yeah, he I did. Guess, he in, did. And people yeah. left and people got upset. Yeah. And- um, how yeah. do you handle the critics? You you have a section in your book about criticism. So you're right yeah. in the middle, you know, whether you're you're at the point where people are mad at you, they're 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 longing for Egypt to use Old Testament language, and you're leading them theoretically to the promised land. How how do you handle critics? Um, I always try to at least understand the context of the evaluation or the criticism. Uh, meaning that um, what does the person criticizing have access to? Uh, you know, often if they are people who are close and trying to understand their own temperament, makeup, those kinds of things, if they are team members, uh, has been helpful to kind of frame it. Uh, one thing for sure, I do want to initially enter that with some type of openness to change. Uh, and uh, at least if it's a if it's in a team context, I think... Um, we always try to communicate that, look, what we're doing here is for the betterment of everyone, some, something greater than our own personal agendas. Can we agree to that rule or to that, you know, to that belief, I should That's say. That's a good idea. Uh, you know, and, and to be explicit about that, to say, look, whatever ideas we come in conflict with, we have to at least agree that the motive behind that is to make our organization better. So mm-hmm. that helps to you know, swallowing, and then I think it's framed a little bit differently there. Um, the other um, thing is, you know, if it's like criticism from people you don't really know, 
or criticism of people you don't really have direct relationship, nor do they have direct context, I would say don't spend too much time thinking about it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because it's not helpful. I mean, I remember Zig Ziglar, um, I was just looking at a quote from Zig Ziglar and it says, don't be distracted by criticism. Remember the only taste of success some people get is to take a bite out of you. Uh, <laughs> and, and so some people, you know, if you're doing something um, important or of significance, there's bound to be critics and what's driving that, but you can't shape the future by that layer. Now, of course, if it's closer to you at team members, that's when, you know, hopefully you have some, a matrix that you can kind of create to really think about it fairly. And that if you yourself have been, you know, guilty of maybe uh, not coherently thinking through a problem, yeah. that you would be open to other people helping. But it should be in some type of shared spirit. Like that's, you know, I think I have a chapter in the book, you know, that's around this notion of a fight club, right? There's certain rules that fight club has, and uh, that should set the grounds for healthy, um, healthy debate, discussion, and pushback. Yeah. No, I think that's true. And if they're really your best people and they've got pushback or criticism, uh, wise leaders listen up. You know, yeah. rare. Do you find that that rarely are you the only one who's right and everybody else is wrong? I mean, what do you discover? <laughs> Yeah, I think um, I'm very well aware that um, I have been wrong multiple times and that's <laughs> not that's not going to change in the future. I run into a lot of leaders who like are convinced that everybody else is wrong and they're right. And I'm like, well, yeah. good luck with that. You know, usually there's some wisdom somewhere along the way. Uh, and occasionally that's true, but for the most part, not so much. When yeah. you When you look at, you know, an industry or the work that you're doing, who are the people who are most successful in, you've got quite a, an impressive client list, but you know, what are yeah. some companies and what are the principles that are helping guide them as they execute their ideas? Yeah, um, I guess success, uh, I, I tend to think of, you know, at the highest level, just just the health and the well-being of people who work at a business uh, is one type of success. I mean, if we're talking specific verticals of success, I know there are elements of like Google's culture, which I really appreciate their commitment to innovation, R&D, exploratory. They have a whole business called Google X that looks into new kinds of emerging uh, technology that may benefit people. And so that type of resource commitment, I'm definitely impressed by, but there are other parts of it where I probably could not work there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I, I guess success is r relative to you know which area you're 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 thinking about. But um, I think of other projects that are totally um, altruistic. We uh, work with Caterpillar Foundation for a while, which is you know a half billion dollar foundation that benefits organizations that work with women and girls around the world. Wow! And their process of really strategically bringing nonprofit organizations together not only to give them major funding, but uh, almost facilitating, they had us facilitate um, how they can collaborate better as grantees right. um, and to map out their countries of impact. And and uh, their type of commitment is pretty inspiring that they just don't want to just give money, but they're speaking into how we can we need to do this together. 
Um, and so organization that's like that um, have been uh, super impressive. Always like, I always think of like nonprofit organizations. I, I always marvel given my background of people like yourself and others who are consistently investing in their community of faith. Mm. Um, I think those are some of the most impressive people that I have met because I know to some extent of what it takes to do that when you are, you know, leading <laughs> thousands of different types of expectations. Yes, uh, yes. And, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, we've been fortunate to work across industries from technology to automotive to, um, and the ones that are really thriving are the ones who know the value of good ideas that innovate and solve problems. And those those companies are committed to solving problems. And I, I think that framing has stuck really deeply with me. Mm. Okay, final word. You're talking to a lot of dreamers here who have so many good ideas. And yeah. some of them are being caught by this and going, yeah, I need to do something. So you want to advise them. Tell them what they need to do with that idea in the next 30 days. In the next 30 days, I think I, I would just reiterate, uh, write it down. Yeah. Uh, begin to document your thoughts and commit to some time you know, each week, even if it's just an hour, to go back to that document and make it better. Uh, one of the things we do at our company is we ask our employees, like every week, can you do one thing that makes our company better? It may be how you respond to an email. It may be how you tweak a process. It may be how you talk about our company. But if we collectively, individually did one thing to make what we're doing better each week, uh, then it's going to make significant impact. We should be a different type of organization two years down the road than we are today. And so same thing with idea is like, is there something you can do this week to push it forward a little bit more? So creating, you know, one action for your idea. Maybe it is first writing it down. Maybe secondly is get a presentation ready to share the idea. Third thing is do a little bit of market research. Fourth thing is try to figure out what are the actual financial numbers that are needed to make this idea work. Five, how's, how does the market look like? You know, so there are things you can do every week to make it a little bit better and keep building that document until you're uh, ready to actually move forward and test it out. And what does a minimal viable product look like for my idea? Uh, so there's always something we can do. It's it's a matter of choice of whether we're going to do it. I think, and I'll I'll, uh, I'll finish up on this, but is that really by writing it down and moving it forward even a little bit? Is it a case that it kind of forces you off the fence where you're either going to fall so in love with the idea that you're going to be like, man, I have to do this? Or by moving it toward an action plan, you're kind of going, actually, this is not such a great idea. And you kind of abandon it. Is it does it get you out of yeah. that dream loop? Is that why that's so valuable? Yeah. And I, I think it just creates a natural point of accountability. And I think mm -hmm. that's the one of the greatest benefits I've seen is. There's something about that that pushes things forward. And I know there are others who just write and write and write, but I'm talking about like taking the writing and then organizing it and yeah. creating action steps around Action it. steps, which your book has. Yeah. I think the end of every short chapter has like stuff you need to yeah. do. Write it down, do something, uh, which Absolutely. is awesome. So Charles Lee, thank you so much for being with us. Where can people learn more about you? And uh, tell us the name of your book and where it's available. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
People can find me on most social channels, just at Charles T, as in Tom, Lee.com, or Charles T. Lee, I guess, social handles, or my website is charlestlee.com. Um, and uh, my book is called Good Idea, Now What? And it's available most anywhere. Um, yeah. I know it's been a few years, but I still get pretty steady flow of emails of people who just picked it up and it s- still seems to apply, So, which is encouraging. Awesome. Charles, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks. It was a pleasure to be with you. Well, some really practical advice. You kind of knew some of that, but man, isn't it good to have incentive to do it? And who knew the power of writing down and who knew that talking about it actually releases chemicals in your brain that make you think that you've already accomplished something which you haven't. So hope that was super practical for you. If you want to dig a little bit deeper, you had some great quotes. You can head on over to the show notes. Just go to kerryneuhoff.com. Uh, episode 274. That's kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 274. Everything will be there, including transcripts. There's also some quotes you can share on social media. And uh, well, that's also the portal into everything I do. Uh, My books are there. I write fresh articles every week. The whole backlog of podcasts is there. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can do that for free if you haven't done that please do so. And we got some more episodes coming up. I am super excited about the people who are on deck this summer. We're having a great summer so far. And coming up next week, we've got Drew Dick. And we have a fascinating conversation about what has changed in online journalism and journalism and in curated content, as well as yet another take on how to get published. He is the acquisitions editor at Moody Publishing, former editor at Christianity Today, and of one of my favorite publications of all time, Leadership Journal. And uh, well, here's an excerpt from that conversation, which is coming up in just a couple days from now. (laughs) And so again, you know, it's when you're not used to it, um, it's difficult. But the reason I mentioned prayer is because it's one of those keystone habits. And this isn't just, you know, Christian devotional uh, uh, ideas. This is real research borne out again and again in study after study. If you even pray for five or 10 minutes a day, you will be more productive at work. You will eat yeah. better. You, your life will improve in numerous ways. Um, leaving the theology aside, of course, that's not the primary reason we pray. We do it to connect with God uh, and, and for other people and ourselves. But it is just a very smart thing to implement in your life. So that's happening on July 4th. Uh, happy 4th of July, by the way, Americans, U.S. Americans. And uh, uh, super excited to bring that to you. If you subscribe, you get it for free. And in the meantime, make sure you check out the special offer 20% off for Church Community Builder. Go to churchcommunitybuilder.com forward slash carry to get started. And if you haven't tried Huddle Up for free, what are you doing about church communications? Start your 14-day free trial today at servehq.church. Well, that's about it for now. See you in a couple of days on the 4th of July. And for all of you Canadians, like me, who just celebrated Canada Day, happy Canada Day. And in the meantime, I hope all of this has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.